Kenakoto Katoa. In 2003, in a burst of schadenfreude, I bought this book, Mortification, Writer's Stories of, of Public Shame. It's filled to the brim with drunken mishaps, book launches gone wrong, mistaken identity and bodily excretions. I've read it many times over the years, mostly when I need a burst of self-confidence and a feeling that no matter how miserable my own writing career is, at least I haven't been caught after a reading on the floor of the bathroom by my flatmate masturbating to a picture of Kylie Minogue. <laughs> Not long after I discovered the work of poet Robert, Robin Robertson, I noticed his name on the cover as the brains behind the book. And when I invited him to the festival, I couldn't resist asking him to host a mortification session with one of the writers featured in the book, Urban Welsh, no longer with us tonight. And to put the challenge to some of our writers, our own writers, New Zealand writers, to see if they could plumb the depths of their own discomfort and shame and come up with something that might make us squirm and feel better about ourselves. And of course, laugh with them, not at them. Our New Zealand writers need little introduction. Paula Morris is the author of many novels and essays and is a whirlwind of energy in the New Zealand literary scene. Next to her, Steve Braunius is also the author of many books, the editor of the spin-off books, and regular word guest who, some would say, likes a good literary stoush. Megan Dunn is the author of Tinderbox, an account of her attempts to write a novel based on Fahrenheit 451 and failing while working in a failing bookshop. Those of you who caught her Cabinet of Curiosity lecture yesterday will know that her current project and obsession is Mermaids. A late addition to the program is Jared Gilbert, author of Patched and as Steve Brawny has called him recently, the thinking man's drinking man. <laughs> now, um, all the authors will be signing books outside in the foyer afterwards, and I urge you all to buy a ticket to see Robin's event talking about his recent man-bookish long-listed book, The Long Take, tomorrow at 2.45 in the chamber. Now, will you please welcome to the lectern, Robin Robertson. Well, I, I've taken the opportunity, as this is the theme is mortification, of not preparing in any way um, for this event. Um, but I can tell you a little bit about the genesis of this anthology of shame. Um, I, by trade, am a publisher, and I usually try and go around the country with writers to protect them from the indignities you will hear about tonight and um, read about in the book if you buy it. Um, and routinely, uh, these writers would tell me stories of uh, absolutely eye-watering events. And I would come back with something I uh, had I recently, uh, just just before I thought of the idea of the anthology, I was up in um, Edinburgh, supposedly doing a poetry event, and I arrived early, and there was a sign on the door which said, an evening of poetry and folk music, which is, <laughs> puts a chill in the heart of any sentient human being. And sure enough, I went upstairs, and, and there was this scene out of a David Lynch film, where this uh, dwarf woman, with hair down to her ankles, was swaying to a music of her own 
devising. Um, and I backed away and went downstairs to have a stiff drink. And eventually I was summoned up uh, upstairs and um, I sat at the back with my book and papers and, and the organizer stood up and he said brightly, um, and now ladies and gentlemen, the moment you've all been waiting for. So I gather my papers and books and walk down the aisle. It's the raffle of the lemon cake. <laughs> and I go back to my seat and, and weep. Um, so all these writers would be telling me stories. I'd be saying, telling that story. They said, oh, if you think that's bad, wait till you hear this one. Um, so I thought, well, why don't I collect these in an anthology? Uh, it's the only time I've ever done anything to make money because writing poetry, obviously, there's no way to do that. Um, so that's what I set out to do, and I got in touch with a lot of writers I knew and some I didn't, and put together this rather extraordinary book. It's actually quite funny. Even after all these years, I look back. Uh, and um, what, what, uh, what holds the book together, as I say in the introduction, Grief's Handmaiden, through all this, it need hardly be said, is alcohol in all varieties, but only one size, too much. <laughs> um, I was going to, I, it's very current this, I had a, a new addition to my list of mortifications only last night, which, um, and Rachel King was there when it happened, but she's told me it's too culturally sensitive to speak about tonight, but maybe tomorrow. <laughs> uh, it was really funny and so shaming. Um, before I move on to the, the writers here and to the uh, mysterious uh, spiritual face of Irvin Welsh, um, I'll just tell you my favorite uh, story from this anthology, just as a taster. Um, Michael Ondaatje tells the story, not about him, but of a, a distinguished American novelist. She's, uh, she's about to go on stage in a huge auditorium, and she's been feeling terrible all day. And she goes up to the lectern, packed audience, expectant, hushed, and she realizes she's going to throw up. But she's a pro. And she, she gets up and says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very sorry, I've just left some of my papers backstage. I'll just be a couple of minutes. And she walks off very gracefully and then sprints to the green room and throws up copiously. And she feels fine. Uh, but there's a knock on the, the door. And she said, yes, yes, I'll, I'll be out in a minute. And the voice said, no, it's not that. It's just you left your lapel mic on. Um, so, um, without further ado, um, we're going to be welcoming uh, Urban Welsh uh, visually. He can't be here. He had a, uh, a death in his family, and I'm his, I've been his editor throughout his career, and I. I know he really wanted to come here, and he's very sad. He can't be with us in person, but he is here 
on the screen. I'm very fortunate in that I'm not that easily embarrassed, which is a good thing, as my behaviour has often not been up to scratch, this particularly being the case in my youth. I think that over the years, I've become inured to the type of embarrassment that really fucks some other people up. I'm not sure whether this is a good or a bad thing. Like most of us, the bulk of my cringeworthy moments have come about through intoxication on drink or drugs. Now I've got to the point that I'm a little bit red-faced if I wake up to find out that I haven't made a complete cunt of myself. It always seems a waste of a night out. Of course, although it certainly helps, I don't need drink or drugs to make a prick of myself. Even sober, I'm the master of the faux pas. I blame this on the incredible arrogance of being so wrapped up in myself that I can't be bothered to pay attention to what's going on around me. Once, when I'd taken a new job in London, after my first week, my boss took me out for a drink. It was quite a relaxed, cordial affair, although the alcohol was slipping down a little bit quickly. He asked me if I was enjoying the job. I told him it was great. Um, he asked if I was getting on with everybody at work. And I explained that they were all fantastic, but there was one person, um, a manager who worked upstairs, and I told him a kind of this kind of confidential kind of way that everybody hated her, and she was referred to as the poisonous cunt in the canteen uh, by men and women alike. At this point, I maybe should have noticed a slightly pained, if thoughtful, reaction on my boss's face. The next day there I was, suitably vulnerable and hungover, I had to go to the pub and I was having a lunchtime game of pool with this girl who worked upstairs beside this manager in question. She asked me if I had a good, if I had a good time last night and I said, yeah, I did, you know, I had more to drink than I expected. And um, she was asking me how I got on with the boss. And I said, well, he seems a really nice guy. It's unusual for me to feel like that about any boss I've had. She agreed that he was okay, but she wasn't a big fan of his wife. And then she said, it must be so strange for him working so closely with her. Of course, I knew straight away who she meant by this, experiencing what myself and a good friend call the crumbling dam effect. This occurs when you feel your face <laughs> suddenly collapse in response to, well, mortification. This type of embarrassment is intense, but it's relatively routine. The big problem in trying to dredge up a really mortifying memory is that there are so many and you suspect that you've repressed the best ones, or the worst ones as the case may be. The one that always sticks in my mind was when I was ticketless at the Scotland versus England game at Wembley in 1979. I sat with two friends in a large carry-out in the car park outside the stadium. We'd been in a state of alcoholic oblivion for a few days and we wouldn't have thanked anybody for tickets at that point. We just wanted to finish our session. I farted <coughs> and followed through 
Despite the quickening of the pulse and the sweating of the brow in response to the warm feeling in my underpants, I nonchalantly headed up and off to the toilets in Wembley Way. I thought I would defecate, get cleaned up as best I could, possibly flushing my kecks away if the damage proved to be too bad. The problem I had was that the toilets had been so badly vandalised that it looked like the foot baths at Edinburgh's Royal Commonwealth Pool. Only they had a couple of inches of pishy water all over the floor which you had to paddle through to get to the toilet traps, urinals and sinks. My whole ridden trainers wouldn't stand a chance so I took them off, then my socks. Rolling up my jeans I paddled along to a smashed up toilet bowl. I then shat and wiped myself with the clean portion of my underpants. Of course there was no toilet paper. I jettisoned the pants and took off my jeans and paddled my way to a wash hand basin. As, naked from the waist down, I tried to wash out my arse, a group of Ouija's, Glaswegians, stood at the entrance, just pushing into the toilet and laughing loudly at my predicament. I carried on with as much dignity as one can muster in such circumstances, and as an Edinburgh man, that's quite a lot of dignity. Climbing onto those boxed-in pipes and washing my push-soaked feet in the sink, then I cram scrambled along the ledge to the door and jumped out and emerging into the car park, where, to the laughter of loads of drunken football supporters, I pulled on my jeans, socks and trainers. I left the scene as quickly as I could and walked around the stadium to compose myself. On my returning to our drinking camp, an irate pal asked me where I'd been. I explained there was a big queue at the toilets. At this point, I really thought I'd got out of jail. After all, I'd been embarrassed, brutally, shamefully embarrassed, but I never see these people again in my life. We get back to my flat where I'd change into fresh kecks before going out again, and this time I switched from Lager to Guinness. Just as I was feeling a little bit pleased with myself, I heard a shout go up quite close. Ah, they're shitey drawers! It was Luigi's who witnessed my plight in the toilets, now laughing again and pointing me out to my pals. They gathered round and started with great delight, filling my friends in with the details. So for years, the story of my Wembley humiliation was a favourite source of amusement to the more unreconstructed drinkers in certain Edinburgh and London pubs. And that one still haunts me. One day, I'll write about it. everyone I'm Paula Morris now I have to confess unlike Irvine I don't have any huge revelation of public shame to share with you today I have no public befoulings no urination no nudity no days in the stocks or nights in the jail cells um, I know the program warned you to have a stiff drink before um, or during or after but my story I think is one of a thousand small humiliations of a life spent braced for imminent shame, for inevitable mortification, of someone turning to me as they did so often at school and say, what are you? Now, of course, there'd be moments, but they were small and mainly involving indignation and fear. As a four-year-old on a family road trip, I wandered into one of those 
small and squalid circuses that used to roam New Zealand in the 1970s, you know, a glorified petting zoo on the shores of Lake Taupo. And for some reason, I bent over, uh, probably to pick a buttercup or to feel the breeze up my mini kilt. Um, the next thing I knew, I was aloft, butted by a goat. Thank you. <laughs> it was very funny for my unfeeling family, uh, who still like to reminisce about it. They were doing so just last week. But for me, it was the beginning, firstly, of a lifelong mistrust of goats <laughs> and the realization, I guess, that public humiliation would be an intrinsic part of my life. Now, also miniskirts. So here's another small moment for you. It's London, early 90s, a special, intimate uh, recital by the soprano Montserrat Caballé, to which I've been invited because I work for the record company. So it's somewhere flash in Knightsbridge from memory with gilt chairs, curtain swags, parquet floors, a grand piano, lots of rich people. Now, in those days, as in my childhood and as in now, I wore short skirts. I had the legs of a Polynesian seafarer, and I, they need to be on display. Now, underneath this skirt and a top, I promise, I was wear, wearing some kind of... Um, one-piece white bodysuit, you know, the kind that has a lacy camisole bit up the top and poppers at the business end. <laughs> so I sat down on one of the gilt chairs, trying to appear urbane and more expensively dressed, and you know what happened. Ladies, you know what happened. Just before I hit the seat, the poppers popped. <laughs> one, two, three, pop, pop, pop. Montserrat Cabier sailed into view. Her hair is black and lacquered as the piano, and it was too late to wriggle off to the loo to fix the problem. I just had to sit for an hour, legs clamped together. Once again, feeling the breeze where the breeze should not be felt. Not in Knightsbridge, not at an operatic recital, which may have been, I think, Caballé's last ever. So there I sat, pretty much vagina on velvet. <laughs> Can I say that in Christchurch, vagina, velvet? If it was a different sort of material, it could have been labia on leather, but I don't know. <laughs> anyway, it was a small moment, and in this case, much more about fear of discovery rather than actual public shame. Now, nowadays, I don't work in the record business anymore, which means I'm no longer sick in the toilets of midtown hotels in New York at the end of yet another after-work drinks. Really, who doesn't end up vomiting after a cocktail or two? Who doesn't take a few impromptu naps on the cool floor of the toilet cubicle? Who doesn't end up staying in the hotel overnight and catching a cab home at 6 a.m.? And at least I never did what one of my colleagues did once, which was vomit directly onto the floor of the bar mid-sentence. And what to do in such a case, by the way, a top tip from me, just walk away. You walk out of the bar and you keep walking. It's New York, they've seen it before. Just walk away. Now, these days, my life is much more tame. I live in central Auckland, where marauding goats are few. Uh, I work at a university, which means I never, ever have after-work after drinks with colleagues. Now, true, I still have wardrobe malfunctions, but who among us has not walked down a wintry street feeling the inevitable slide of leggings and tights in tandem down and down the legs until the crotch of both reaches the temporary logjam of the knees. <laughs> Who hasn't stood in the subway knowing that if you sat down, you would leave a dark smear of blood on the seat, the blood that's already seeped through your jeans and is clotting between your legs and has ruined your underwear, and by the way, you're on your way to work where you have to go straight into a meeting.
Most women know a mortification or 20 of this kind. The mortification is even better, of course, if the genes are white and if the chair is in your high school classroom. Now, last year, I had to give a presentation at the university on something to do with pedagogy, blah, 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 in front of a small crowd of the despairing and a donor who had flown in from Europe to find out how we had squandered her money. So everyone seemed quite engaged in what I was saying. Um, they were ducking out of the room to get the free Rice Krispies. They all seemed to be quite intent on my fascinating blah, blah, blah. Now, I was wearing dress shorts, and yes, there is such a thing. They look good with my Polynesian seafaring legs. And even if your all-in-one underwear pop, pop, pops open, you have another layer of protection against the cool breeze. But only when I walked back to my seat did I realize that the decorative tie belt of these dress shorts had come undone, was flapping loose. Also, the buttons of the waistband had come undone. Also, the zip had slid to fully open position. <laughs> the whole garment was balancing on my hip bones waiting for a nudge from a goat, say, or similar, <laughs> to drop to my ankles. No wonder the audience was wrapped. Uh, now, when I'm not pretending to be a professional, I am a writer, and my mortifications are small stabs, petty but insistent. Um, because I appear at many literary festivals like this one, I live in fear of public shame, the shame of being unprepared, the shame of denunciation when I ask a stupid question the shame of disapproval when I answer a question stupidly, the shame of running onto stage late because I have the time wrong, the shame of falling over on the stage because I fall over everywhere and I'm always wearing the wrong shoes. But most of my humiliations continue to be petty ones. In the green room before an event, I'm usually asked who I'm looking after. That is, it's assumed I'm a publicist rather than a writer. Afterwards, I sit at the signing table, as I will tonight, smiling and playing with the pen while nobody queues up to buy my books or get them signed or get anything signed, even a post-it. Um, though sometimes someone asks me to take a photo of them with another author. Um, sometimes the writer sitting next to me is from overseas and though previously unknown in New Zealand, and despite writing only in ancient Sanskrit or emojis, has a queue stretching out the door. Now, it's true that when I've been the interviewer rather than the interviewee, more people want to speak to me afterwards. They want to say things like, I always love your interviews, especially that one you did yesterday, to which I reply, actually, that was Charlotte Grimshaw. <laughs> they want to say things like, aren't you Charlotte Grimshaw? They want to say, oh, I know who you are. You write for the listener. Well, yes, I write about one book review a year for the listener. I'm glad to know it's the chief source of my literary fame. At the airport yesterday, is it yesterday we arrived? Christ Friday, was that yesterday? God, I've aged. Uh, a number of us gathered in baggage claim to be sorted into vans, and John Campbell was there. Are you familiar with John Campbell? Famous New Zealand person. So he was introduced to Tina Makareti and to me. He shook our hands and smiled. Hello, Tina. Hello, Paula. Tina, I love your work. The poet Paula Green regularly forwards me emails sent to her by members of the public or other writers telling her how much they enjoyed hearing a broadcast of her novel, Rangatira, on Radio New Zealand. Last year, I got a phone call out of the blue from someone organizing a literary festival in the Manawatu. I understand, she said, that not only are you an award-winning poet, you were born in the Manawatu. I had to disappoint her on both counts. 
Well, who are you then? She asked. <laughs> I told her. She did not invite me to take part in the festival. <laughs> There's worse. So, earlier this year, the patrons' launch for the Auckland Writers Festival was held at the home of the chair, Pip Muir. Um, I enjoy infiltrating events like this because there are free drinks and also people who can afford to buy books. I go from room to room, making sure that the person has a large enough TV. It's just a concern of mine. And I sat chatting with a woman who was one of the patrons for quite a while. I introduced myself and we talked. And she began raving about the recent event she'd been to at the Altair Center um, with Nigella Lawson. She said how much she'd enjoyed it. And had I, she wanted to know, managed to get a ticket. I was the interviewer. <laughs> Up there on stage with Nigella. Clearly, I'd made a big impression. And by the way, one of my colleagues tracked me down in the photocopy room a few weeks after the Nigella interview. Why do they ask you to do it, she said. I don't know why. Perhaps I am the invisible woman with magic powers. At the end of the interview, all memories of me disappear, leaving audiences with a warm, fuzzy glow they associate entirely with the interviewee in his or her books. Now, OK, to end, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I am an awful person. <laughs> Back in the 90s when I was living in London, I did something that I still feel ashamed about. It's a public thing. At Vauxhall Tube Station, a London Underground employee approached me and asked if I was going to Victoria. I was. Would I accompany a blind woman and her dog there? I didn't want to do it, but I couldn't say no. The woman was standing right there. She'd already taken hold of my arm. So we got on the train and rode the two stops. She was unfriendly. She wasn't like a nice blind person. She seemed, she seemed very anxious. The dog seemed semi-trained at best. It wasn't one of those dogs on TV who can detect bombs or cancer, you know. It was just a normal dog wearing a red jacket. <laughs> now, at Victoria, we navigated the crowded platform and got to the escalators. I was young and foolish. I didn't have a dog. I didn't realize that dogs can't go on escalators. Did you know this? Thank you. So as we approached it, the dog started whining and backing away. And then it slipped its leash or its steering attachment or whatever it is and ran away. The woman and I had already stepped onto the escalator. My dog, she shouted. What have you done, you stupid person? Dogs can't go on escalators. Escalators hurt their paws, you stupid, stupid person. My dog, my dog, my kingdom for a dog. On and on, she shouted. It was one of those really long escalators. <laughs> She was crying and shouting, all these escalators loaded with hundreds of people who all knew more about dog paws than I did, were staring at us. You stupid, stupid person, she shrieked. I didn't know what to do. I apologized over and over. And then I heard a shout from the stairs. You know, there were stairs running parallel. Another young woman, less stupid than I was, had found the dog. I've got the dog, she shouted. She and the dog were dashing up the stairs to meet us at the top. So I told the blind woman what was happening, and she shouted that I was a stupid, stupid person. So we reached the top. The young woman struggled over with the dog, and it still looked very unprofessional and quite mutinous. The blind woman clutching my arm was whimpering, but the mother and dog reunion was imminent. We'd reached Victoria, so I shook my arm free of her grip. And then, like the dog before me, like the coward I am, I ran away. Thank you.
thank you, Paula, and uh, thanks for sharing your wine. <laughs> uh, it actually strikes me that I, uh, I probably don't need to uh, read this speech out. I could just hold it up and you could read it from where you're sitting because it's in 72 point. <laughs> but uh, it's a real pleasure uh, to be at the Christchurch Word Festival alongside... Uh, authors such as Robin and Paula and Megan and Jared, and uh, other festival guests too, uh, like Diana Wichtel, who's with us today, and of course, um, Helen Clark. Uh, I didn't see Helen's uh, event last night, but I actually saw her walking down the street. Uh, she was ahead of me and storming along like a southerly in slacks. <laughs> I thought to myself, I'd know the back of that neck anywhere. I sat behind her for a memorable hour a good few years ago at a classical guitar concert in Wellington. Helen had just become leader of the Labour Party. I had a lot in common with her at the time because we were both on the government payroll. I was collecting the dolls. I was in between jobs and that's actually another thing that I have in common with Helen because a few, few years later she was in between being the Prime Minister of New Zealand and head of the United Nations Development Programme. And so that was something I could really relate to. <laughs> I'm surprised she didn't turn to me for advice, uh, but that's a mark of her willingness to tough things out. And I saw that for myself during that memorable hour at a classical guitar concert in Wellington. Gosh, I loved Wellington. The houses bolted into sharp rock on the side of hills. The rain coming at you sideways and as pointed as daggers in the wind. The reefs in the harbour that cut open the wahine. The sharks circling and picking up the scent of blood in Parliament. The city felt like a jagged edge. You had to have your wits about you. It kept you awake at night. It wasn't exactly relaxing. But I loved every minute of living there and I never wanted to leave. Friends would send postcards from their big OE in Barcelona and Tokyo and Rio and write boring lines about how great it all was. And I would send them back postcards of lower heart. <laughs> I really didn't want to leave New Zealand and bother seeing the world. New Zealand was too strange, too mysterious, too baffling. And that was just lower heart. <laughs> Don't even get me started on upper heart. <laughs> Friends would say, you've got to see London. I'd say, I wouldn't give you tuppence for London. I'd say, New York, New York is like history. It's bunk. I'd say, let's walk alongside the shingle banks of the Hutt River. I did a lot of walking alongside the shingle banks of the Hutt River, and no one ever wanted to come with me. <laughs> I wandered lonely as a low-hanging cloud for hours, weeks, years, but you can have too much of a good thing, and eventually I bowed to peer group pressure and I made up my mind to go on a big OE. I had a good job and I set about saving up, and in no time at all I had enough money stashed away to go overseas for two or three years. I took budgeting advice from a book called Southeast Asia on a Dollar a Day. <laughs> I didn't actually read it. The title said all I needed to know. 
So I quit my job, gave notice, and left New Zealand on a flight to Denpasar with a thousand bucks in my pocket a few weeks before Christmas. I returned to New Zealand on a flight from Kuala Lumpur a few weeks after Christmas. <laughs> Penniless, stupid fucking book. <laughs> I went to see about getting my old job back, no dice. I went to see about getting my old flat back, a sleep out that a friend had moved into, no dice. But he said, you can have your cat George back. <laughs> I signed on the dole. I found a one-bedroom flat. It was downstairs, very sunny, pets were all good, and the landlord lived upstairs. I'll get my life back together, I thought. I needed to get the phone on so I could call about work. Well, said the landlord, do you mind if I use your line as well? He seemed like a good guy, and I couldn't see any reason why not. I made a lot of calls. It was summer. I liked having George around. The weather got warmer and warmer. Employers weren't returning my calls, but the phone started ringing late at night. Guys were asking for Trixie and Candy and Desiree and, touchingly, Fawn. It's for you, I'd yell into the darkness and wait for the landlord to pick up. We worked out a better system. I'd bang on the ceiling with a broom. Such was the secret code between an out-of-work journalist and a pimp in a Wellington summer when I eked out my dole on rent, bills, groceries. There wasn't much left over after dole day on Thursdays. By the, by the time George got fleas one Sunday, there wasn't enough to buy flea powder. Well, I figured nothing to do but wait it out till Thursday. And in the meantime, call about jobs on the hut news and bang the ceiling with a broom at midnight. The fleas multiplied. They liked summer and they liked my cat. They took an even greater liking to my carpet. George fled to the highest surface in the flat, the top of the fridge. By the Wednesday afternoon, I could watch the carpet heaving with fleas. They would rise in great waves. It was like an ocean, an evil sea, rising and falling, rising and falling. I thought, things can't go on like this. I thought, this is bad, very bad. And the phone rang, and I wondered if it was going to be for Trixie or Candy or Desiree or little whoring fawn, but it was for me. It was for me, a friend calling to say he had a free ticket to a classical guitar concert. <laughs> and would I like to go? And I said, yes, please, see you there. The cat looked imploringly at me from the top of the fridge as I raced out the door and left that sea of madness. I didn't even like classical guitar music. It's like New York, it's bunk. But it was a joy to be able to leave the flat and not have to worry about George or Fawn and sit in a room full of eminently employed people. It was like rejoining civilization, something refined and cohesive after fighting my way through a jungle. We got good seats, middle row near the front, directly behind the right honorable Helen Clark. 
The lights went down and the guitarist hunched over his honey-coloured instrument and he began picking limpid notes. I thought, actually, I like classical guitar music. It explored deep states of infinite sadness. It crept along narrow ledges of melancholy and it floated in tranquil silence. But then the show came crashing down as though a giant wave had come crashing down away from a, deep, a dark and evil sea and the halo of stage light that silhouetted Helen Clark's head I watched a flea jump onto her shoulder. <laughs> it came from my direction. I looked down at my sleeve. A flea jumped off it. I looked up at Helen Clark's head. A flea was hopping up and down on it. Or not really hopping, it was more like it was dancing, moving to the limpid notes, really getting into the music. I sat rigid with horror. What had I done? How dare I release a parasite onto the head of the head of the New Zealand Labour Party? <laughs> Did you know that siphon aptera have mouth parts which are adapted for piercing skin and sucking blood and have strong claws that prevent them from being dislodged? Helen Clark knows. <laughs> The dance of the solo flea transfixed me with shame. And then that shame was doubled when the dance turned into a duet. <laughs> not one, but two fleas were jumping up and down on Clark's head. Then not two, but three, four, five. Mortification is liquid. I was covered in a hot coat of perspiration. I was full as a sponge. If someone had squeezed me, I'd have filled a watering can. I stared at the back of the, of the Labour Party leader's neck and I thought, actually, I fucking hate classical guitar music. <laughs> Even before the terrible moment when Helen Clark began scratching her, her hands and her scalp and her neck, I thought, actually, I hate myself. Intermission couldn't come fast enough and I made some lame, desperate excuse, anything to avoid going back in there. But neither did I want to go home and face that two-bit flea pit whorehouse. It was a warm summer's evening. I took a walk. I took a very long walk. Wellington is a walker's paradise with its forests and its coasts and its shingle riverbanks. The fresh night air cleansed my sins. At midnight, the dole went into my account and I went to an all-night pharmacy and I was able to go home and liberate George and the carpet from that terrible infestation. The phone rang at about 2 a.m. I'd learned a little about how the agency operated from the landlord and I fixed the caller up with Desiree. <laughs> I started it doing more and more and he paid me under the table. The money came in handy and I started getting my life back together. Employers began returning calls. I met someone. It was brief but lovely and sometimes I think about, I think of touching fawn. It was a lovely summer. It was a lovely summer. And I thought back to it today 
when I saw Helen Clark on the street. <laughs> and then she turned around. Our eyes met. She raised her hand and she scratched the back of her neck. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I have only two bits of preamble. One was that when Rachel King said I was going after Steve, I called her a devil woman. And two is that this is recent. There are mermaids in the future, Jeff wrote in my copy of his latest book, The Water Will Come. Yes, I thought. There are mermaids in the present, so it stands to reason there will be mermaids in the future. And the conditions are only getting better for them. I went to Jeff Goodall's talk at the Auckland Writers' Festival earlier this year for the content. He was talking about rising sea levels and climate change. Perfect. I'm writing a book about mermaids and climate change keeps coming up as one of the big issues. Yet I only really know what most of us know. It's happening. It's our fault. It's not good. I met Jeff at the author party the night before his session. I'm coming to your talk, I, told, I said. I told him about my book. Despite being some kind of climate change expert and an American, he knew nothing about professional mermaids. I, I can't believe it, I told him. Jeff, this is an American story, I said. The United States is heaving with mermaids, and many of them are ocean activists. Others are active in beach cleanups, or at the very least, post articles on Facebook about reusable straws. Jeff had no idea, but he was interested. I'm going to the States soon, I said, to interview some of the top mermaids. You're really serious about this, aren't you, he said. I guess we all have that moment when it dawns on us that some other nut at a party we're speaking to is actually serious and not just a figment of our imagination. Anyway, this isn't about getting down on Jeff, who was nothing less than kind, patient and curious during our very mermaid-focused conversation. What else have you written, I asked him. You're probably really famous, but I just wanted to come to your talk because I follow so many mermaids. Jeff listed his other books. One was about coal. They sounded serious and sciencey. I assumed he was a scientist. He'd swum the Great Barrier Reef with his daughter. Lots of mermaids have swum the Great Barrier Reef, I said. What's going to happen to humanity, I asked Jeff. Are we all going to die? I genuinely thought he seemed like someone who might know. But apparently that's not the question most people ask him. What is? Most people ask Jeff if they should sell their beachfront property. As a 43-year-old unknown writer working on a non-fiction book about mermaids for adults, but not in an X-rated way, property isn't really a problem I've got, <laughs> especially not a beachfront property. The next day, I entered the packed-out auditorium of writers and presumably property owners for Jeff's talk. Looking around, I realised that Jeff was a popular scientist. During the chaired session, Jeff mentioned how last night someone had asked him if we were all going to die. The audience laughed, although ultimately the answer is yes, we are all going to die. So, Jeff told the audience what he told me, that we were like cockroaches and would last, although our coastlines will be changed. At some point in the talk, there was footage on the screen behind Jeff of his trip to Alaska with President Obama. 
That was when I realised that Obama might not know anything about mermaids either. <laughs> Fuck, guys, this is serious. <laughs> mermaids are not the kind of topic that promotes seriousness. Even so, I got Jeff to sign uh, my copy of his book, and I barked out some garbled pitch for Rolling Stone magazine, where Jeff is an editor, about mermaids and climate change. You know, I've got nothing to lose. Jeff, to his credit, didn't laugh in my face. Instead, he's occasionally started DMing me the odd mermaid-related link on Twitter. One was to a mermaid class held in South Florida. So that was how I wound up in a pool in Dana Beach, Fort Lauderdale, one hot day in late June. Hot doesn't really cover Florida. The heat has a density. I felt as though it was sitting on my skin like processed cheese. The Uber had trouble locating the complex, and I had no idea where Dana Beach was and kept worrying I'd be attacked by a rogue crocodile in a waterway just because it was remotely possible. Finally, I found Charlotte from Aqua Mermaids. You're so pretty, she said brightly. I love your mermaid dress. My dress was a violent Kermit green, and I was the one ghost inside it, my distemper and disbelief punctuated only by freckles. Charlotte looked like a woman who could plausibly give a mermaid class, which was what she was. She was slender, with long hair, a tan, and an upbeat attitude. For some inexplicable reason, she also reminded me of Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I wondered if she was Republican, but didn't ask. The pool was unpopulated, good, a chlorinated rectangle ready to be made mermazing. I told Charlotte I was missing my three-year-old daughter. She had two children of her own around the same age and couldn't imagine ever leaving them. <laughs> Charlotte opened a duffel bag of fabric tails. The tails were PG, rudimentary, a beginner's guide. My fantasy of becoming a mermaid felt as distant as ever. Is that even my fantasy? I noticed with some disturbance a hula hoop had been placed beside the pool and I thought immediately of Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's writing advice was simple. If in the first act you have hung a pistol on the wall, then in the following one it should be fired, otherwise don't put it there. Anton, a pistol, sure, but a hula hoop, no. What colour tail do you want, Charlotte asked. I don't know, purple, I said. Perhaps orange would pop more, she mused. I was happy to be guided into my tail, but the orange one had a tear, so the purple won. I sat on the edge of the pool and placed my feet into the monofin, then began to roll the tail on. As advised by Charlotte, I bum-shuffled to get it over my waist. The process wasn't one that inspired feelings of Daryl Hannah-ness, but I already knew that all professional mermaids had to go through this. I like your directive style, I told Charlotte who, in addition to running the Aqua Mermaid South Florida franchise, is an entertainment lawyer. She asked me, have you got mermaids to sign affidavits in these interviews? No. <laughs> she didn't put her tail on so she could save me from drowning, just in case. The pool made sense in the heat. I looked forward to being in it, learning my lesson, then getting out of it, putting my Kermit dress back on and getting the fuck away from Dana Beach. But first things first, we stood on the step of the pool, me in the monofin and tail, and began to undulate. My waist stiffly responded to Charlotte's directions, jerking forward then back as my mind tried to comprehend what my body was being asked to deliver. The relationship between my body and my mind has never been kismet. They get along, but they're not in sync. Unlike Charlotte, who's a synchronised swimmer and a dancer, she undulated with ease. The dolphin kick is the Mermaid 101 movement. Remember your neck and head, Charlotte said. I had to try and undulate them as well. 
the waist felt silly, but trying to undulate my neck and head felt really dumb, especially out of water. Finally, we got into the pool. I dolphin kicked to the end and back. I wore goggles which grasped my face tightly. Charlotte said I was good, much better than most on their first try. I did some more dolphin kicking, feeling stupidly pleased like Flipper. I had learned a little trick and was being praised for my performance. Then I had to try and stay under. Charlotte swam alongside me, nebulous feelings caught in the flow. I want to know how you feel, Charlotte asked when we came up. To be honest, I feel completely hideous, I told her. I poured out all my teenage neuroses, the stuff so many women feel about themselves, that deep sense of ugliness that's hard to shake. But I gamely kept going. That's what middle age is, gamely keeping going. Charlotte decided, me, decided to teach me some new tricks and that's when it all fell apart. I couldn't stay under the water long. I wasn't good at sculling or expelling the breath from my lungs as I went down. I felt like a, ha a haggis that kept on surfacing at inopportune moments. Do haggis surface? Why would you put a haggis in a pool at Dana Beach? I think I just put that in there because of the Scottish season. Charlotte demonstrated the corkscrew and the torpedo. After a few tries, I began coughing and choking like a smoker. I don't smoke. I swam to the side of the pool and clanged to the edge. I hacked and snot flew out of my nose. The good news was that I felt I had really come to understand some of the pragmatic challenges of the mermaid performer. Ages ago, I interviewed Chris Crumley, an underwater photographer who specializes in mermaid shoots. He runs mermaid classes off the Gulf of Mexico. Chris told me there were two types, sinkers and floaters. I finally knew the truth. I was a floater. Charlotte made me blow bubble kisses underwater because that's what mermaids do. I had to swim back and forth past her and blow kisses to the underwater camera, each a fart escaping from my lips. I expelled large, thunderous bubbles rather than a dreamy little fleet of feminine circles and well-wishers. I liked Charlotte best when she was holding the GoPro, her face completely focused on the task at hand, getting that mermazing shot. After we got out, Charlotte took even more control and I let her. I posed for an array of pictures beside the pool. This is all part of the Aqua Mermaid package. I ask all the mermaids I interview how much beauty matters, and most say it doesn't matter at all. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, they tell me, and other mermazing things that we all want to believe. Charlotte kept arranging me for my close-up as though she knew what she was doing. You're going to love these photos, she said. You're going to be surprised. She got her own fake pink flower and pinned it into my hair. I was uncomfortable with its presence there. Then she insisted on bringing out her lipstick and handing it to me. Put it on. I'd evaded the hula hoop only to be toppled by another woman's lipstick. The tip of the lipstick was shaped for Charlotte's mouth, not mine. But now I'd been presented with the lipstick. I knew it was a pistol that had to go off. I coloured my lips in as best I could. Check off, I hope you're fucking happy, I thought. I insisted on putting on my shades for the last shots. That's not necessary, Charlotte said, but it was. Behind the shades, I was shielded from my own glare. The water is my happy place, Charlotte told me. I have a memory of her swimming beside me underwater, her arms reaching out as though we might embrace. Charlotte thought she was helping. Nurse Ratchet probably thought she was helping too but the water isn't my happy place. Later, I took an Uber to a bookstore and bought a book about mermaids. The bookstore is my happy place. The mermaids safely sealed inside the covers of a book where they bloody should be. When I got back to the hotel, I actually cried. 
I Skyped my partner at home. I told him about the flower and lipstick. He comforted me. Louis Theroux would have done it, he said. <laughs> Later still, I plucked up the courage to DM a photo to Jeff. Participatory journalism, Jeff said. I like it. Thank you. Now, um, you will see me as a reserve for Irving Walsh, a ring-in, a bit player, someone who's just come off the bench. And this is good, actually, because I do fear that after this, you're going to remember me for something else, and a bit player is going to be infinitely better than that. Now, <clears throat> my life can be divided into two revolving parts. Um, each has a name. And during one, I eat healthily, I run almost every day, I don't drink, and I call this Zen. The other state is a debauched hedonism. Um, I'm barely human, I drink a lot, I smoke a lot of cigarettes, and I call this normal. <laughs> now, during one particularly large session of normal, I was gripped by a sudden and terrible madness. A mate named Gobbo bet me 100 bucks that I couldn't run a marathon in three hours and 30 minutes and not knowing what that meant at all, of course, I immediately said yes. Now, it cost me 120 bucks to enter the marathon, and so I had to accept that this challenge did lack a certain level of economic rationality. And as I hit the streets day after day, a negative 20% return was not one, what one would call a motivating factor. But like many bets, the winning was not as important uh, sorry, the, like many bets, the winning and not the reward was the most important thing. And although if it was pride that I was after, things took a very serious dip for the worse, um, as I was caught short of a toilet and had to drop my pants huddling on the side of the Sumner Causeway. Now, it started with urgent cramps, I mean urgent cramps, and then I had to go for a crap immediately on the Sumner Causeway. Now, the Sumner Causeway is just a long stretch of road, right? Um, there's just nothing on either side but water. So you've got cars like, like that. It's possibly the most exposed piece of geography on Earth. <laughs> now, Now, many people who have run a marathon will know that that is actually something that happens, right? And they'll also know that running a marathon is a pretty much a part-time job, and you have to put some effort in. Um, so nights and weekends, um, I was running. And when the big day came, I was a vague approximation of ready. Now, before the race, I knew it would be painful toward the end. Everyone told me that. Therefore, I expected pain, and I repeated a mantra just to power through it. Half an hour's pain was, seemed worth it for the reward that I would be given. This health kick, my zen, 
had dropped me into the middle of a cruel and despicable insanity. The first 20 kilometers or so were fine, no real worries, barring some tightness in my calves. I'd promised myself for whatever happened, I wasn't allowed to feel discomfort until the 30 kilometer mark. So for the most of that time, I dutifully ignored the fact that I was actually really starting to hurt. Um, and here's a pretty obvious fact of evolution. Pain's impossible to ignore. By the time I hit the 35 kilometer mark, I was suffering at 38 kilometers. I was making these involuntary yelps. I was running, ah, ah. I thought about the good old days when my only concern was having a shit on the Sumner Causeway. <laughs> One of the greatest humiliations of my life was suddenly man manifesting itself as not so bad at all. The madness was complete. But here's where it gets interesting. Just as I truly thought I'd have to stop, I, I, I genuinely thought I would have to stop, an angel in a Nike singlet came along. An angel dripping in sweat made of little more than sinew. An angel who, if I'm honest, looked particularly close to death. Now, recognizing my obvious state, this angel, this incredible man, urged me on. Between breaths that appeared to be a slow cardiac arrest, um, this angel told me this was his fifth marathon and that I could do it. I could do it. Now, despite this idiot angel having put himself through the hell on four other occasions, I followed him into the battle which I thought was the finish line. I could do it. And every minute or so, this, this, this angel encouraged me on, implored that I could just to continue. I could do it. As I began to make utterances that seemed to be completely new forms of swear word, this angel urged me on, I could do it. Now, I did not know if this angel was my Sherpa Tenzing or my Captain Oates, but I knew one thing. I was having a terrible, terrible time. Now, at the start of the race, I was ticking off milestones in 10-kilometer blocks, then one kilometer, and now, and now, at this point, I kid you not, every single lamppost was a goal. Each felt like this long, long, slow, painful journey until this final step, and I reached the finish line. I did it. I looked at the time, three hours and 28 minutes, I had won the bet. Now, it is very difficult for me to describe just how little satisfaction that gave me. <laughs> I veered off the road, I found some grass, and I lay down and I hoped that I would never get up. I paused only to have a quick look around for that angel, actually. I wanted to thank him, I desperately wanted to thank him. Um, but I couldn't, I, I didn't see him, a lot of people around, and so I just lay back down and waited for death. Now, a funny thing happens in the days, well, the funny thing happened in the days that followed the marathon. The full bruises that completely covered my calves began to die down, and the hobble of my walk found a way to return to normality. And the sense of achievement began to kick in. And inner satisfaction overtook all else, I felt I could do anything. And one must marvel at the unique element of the human condition that consistently, oh, constantly um, suppresses bad memories and just keeps the good ones alive. The whole experience took on a really virtuous glow. I could do anything. And about a year later, another mate told me he was going to go for, a, he was going to run a marathon. And he said, mate, come along. Why don't you do another one? And as quick as a flash, without even thinking, really, I reached this heartwarming answer, and it makes me incredibly proud um, to this day, actually. I said to him, fuck off. Go shit on the causeway by yourself. 
Well, um, now you know what this is all about. Um, <laughs> ritual uh, humiliation. Um, as John Banville says in the anthology, um, when he's out waiting by the book table uh, for people to come and uh, buy a book, someone comes up to him and said, look, I don't want to buy a book. You just look so lonely. <laughs> so please, please put these people out of their misery at the book table. Um, thank you to Paula, Steve, Megan, and Jared uh, for a wonderful evening of shame. Thank you.